1: As we entered the home stretch toward Election Day, my colleague Sean Zeller was thinking about the last four years and whether the way President Donald Trump has governed will have a lasting impact on the presidency. That led him to presidential historian David Greenberg, and the two
0: spoke for a podcast about what the future holds for the office of the president. Check it out.
1: His fans and detractors alike would agree that Donald Trump has done more to change the role of the president than any chief executive in modern times. On November 3rd, Americans will decide whether they like the changes enough to give him another term or not. Where he differs most strongly from his predecessors is in how he has reshaped the image of the president from statesman to political warrior constantly at battle with his opponents. That strategy has reshaped the Republican Party too, earned Trump a devoted base, and some policy victories as well. But it has also had costs to our civic life, to U.S. standing in the world, and perhaps to his own chances for re-election. Whether Trump wins or not, his tenure will affect how future presidents handle the job. This is CQ Future, and I'm Sean Zeller. To help us explore the future of the presidency today is Professor David Greenberg of Rutgers University, who has authored several books on different presidents and aspects of the presidency, including Republic of Spin, An Inside History of the American Presidency, examining the rise of the White House spin machine from the progressive era to the present day, and Nixon's Shadow, The History of an Image. So welcome, Professor Greenberg. We appreciate you coming on the show.
0: Yeah, glad to be with you. Thanks.
1: So your expertise is in presidents and the presidency. You've written a number of books. How has President Trump changed the presidency that you've studied all these years?
0: Yeah, I think he's changed it in a lot of ways, probably more than we have time to discuss. And it'll be an interesting uh, question to see whether, with the next president whether it's Joe Biden or whether it's somebody four years from now, um, those changes stick or we sort of revert to a more normal way of being. I mean, I don't think anybody really knows. But uh, normal is sort of the key word. Uh, Trump's, the the biggest changes he has made has have to do with norms. And this is, you know, not a... a An insight original to me, you know, people have been remarking on this for four years, even before that, going back to his campaign. He just has systematically discarded the rules, the norms, the ways of conducting himself, written and unwritten. And I think for a lot of people, it wasn't even clear how far a president could go in discarding those rules until Trump did that. I mean, some of the things are just so obvious, uh, but, you know, never before have presidents just routinely insulted uh, members of the media, members of the opposition, members of their own cabinet in just the most juvenile, nasty, degrading terms in public. And now that goes on regularly. (laughs) You know, that's just something Trump always does. I think we should all hope that's not something that becomes the new normal. Um, But it is that previous norm about a certain kind of conduct as president uh, Trump has just discarded. I mean, just by way of historical example, when Richard Nixon was heard on his secret White House tapes acting like this, it was a scandal, but at least Nixon knew to do it in private, (laughs) you know, and it was scandalous in part because the Nixon on the tapes was so much at odds. With the statesman like persona he tried to project in public. Trump doesn't even try. He's happy to have his id, his rage, have it all on display all the time for everyone to
1: see. It strikes me that, you know, maybe the, the big picture thing that he's done that most surprises me is that in his election as president, he never stopped being a politician, he never shifted from being a campaigner to being the president of the United States, as someone who wants to represent all of the United States, all of the people of the country, and bring us together in compromise to lead us in crisis. He's continued to really operate as if he's in a permanent campaign.
0: Yeah, and, you know, sometimes I think of it as the president's two roles of being a partisan and a statesman. And You know, all presidents have to be both at certain times. You know, sometimes people faulted Obama for always or too often playing the statesman and not being the bare-knuckle partisan enough in order to get what he wanted from the Republicans in Congress. Um, And presidents have to sort of regulate when they work in which mode. Typically, there are times where it's sort of a gimme that you step into the statesman role after uh, Oklahoma City. You know, we think of the bombing and Bill Clinton's speech or Obama after the Charleston massacre, Bush after 9-11. So sometimes, yeah, after tragedies or or, or national crises. Um, so look at Trump in the pandemic. <laughs> you know, it's all been partisan. I'm doing the best job calling Fauci an idiot. You know, these kinds of things are totally... Um, at variance with our expectations of how a president should uh, properly behave. And I don't think Trump really has it in him to step into that statesman role.
1: Looking back in history, is there any president who's so diverted in the past from the norms of the presidency?
0: It's very hard to say because each president has to sort of be judged by his own times and the norms and expectations change even our definition of what the public is has changed, you know, as voting has expanded, as the public's become more diverse. You know, I think you can find certain examples. Uh Andrew Johnson, you know, who was Lincoln's successor, took over the presidency when Lincoln was killed. He certainly had some Trump-like qualities. Um, you know, he he violated norms. He got very sort of angry and argumentative. He fought with Congress all the time, and he was impeached, much as Trump was. He also was acquitted, as Trump was, Um, although sort of as part of the understanding, he didn't seek another term. Um, That was, he was sort of laid low in that sense. Um, So, you know, you can find some people say Andrew Jackson, all the Andrew Jackson was a much more sort of impressive, in many ways, accomplished man. Um, You know, Jackson loved to sort of flout norms. His inauguration is famous because it was sort of like this populist free-for-all where instead of just stately dignitaries, you know, the hoi polloi were kind of running with muddy boot prints all over the White House furniture. Uh, So, you know, it's not as though there's never been anyone who's, uh, you know, pandered to the masses or shaken up the system. You know, we've had different presidents who have done it in different ways. It's hard to think of anyone who's done it so systematically and relentlessly as Donald Trump.
1: Now, of course, he's come in for a lot of criticism for his style. And I suppose your answer to this may depend on whether he wins re-election or not. But is there a case to be made that future presidents may adopt at least some part of his approach in terms of seeking to keep the public divided to keep his base motivated in some ways you can look at his record and see success in that that he his base is very dedicated
0: yeah and i i think you know you're right that in some ways we will judge it primarily by whether he gets a second term i mean historically that one Collective decision we make, you know, four Novembers after the president's initial election becomes the verdict. Presidents who are elected to two terms, for the most part, are seen as historical successes. And those, for the most part, who are turned out after one term are not. Um, I've always felt that Donald Trump, despite Being a very good politician and scoring this dramatic, uh, unexpected success, uh, underdog success in 2016, um, had to contend with his unpopularity. I mean, when he was elected, he was the most unpopular person ever elected. So people were voting for him who saw his flaws, knew his flaws, maybe even didn't like him. Uh, And yet, for whatever reason, they didn't like Hillary, they didn't want a woman, they didn't like Democrats, they didn't want a Clinton, they voted for him. I think there is still a a sizable uh, percentage of people who we wouldn't call his base. Uh, They don't wear the MAGA hats, but they vote for him, they support him, whether they want Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court, whether they want tax cuts, regulations repealed. So that part of a conservative agenda that he's implemented has gone a long way, I think, toward masking the weaknesses in his style and the degree to which he is disliked. I mean, he's disliked, obviously, on the left and by Democrats, but I think the dislike runs deeper.
1: But some people who dislike him still vote for him. You've written a book about presidential spin, you know, how presidents try to Shape the public's understanding of events sometimes uh, more truthfully than not. And President Trump, of course, has a well earned reputation for spin, if not outright fabrications. Where does Trump fit into that history of presidential spin? Well,
0: I toyed with writing a book. The working title was going to be Beyond Spin, you know, Donald Trump and the presidency of. Truthful hyperbole, alternative facts, and um, I forget what the third one was, another one of these phrases of the Trump era, these euphemisms for lying. (laughs) Um, Part of the argument in my book of Republic of Spin was that, well, of course, all presidents lie. Um, For the most part, political lies are expected to kind of stay within the boundaries of Defensible claims. And that part of the trick of political rhetoric is to put the best gloss on it, the best spin on your arguments, on your record, on your plans, on your achievements, um, you know, without crossing over into outright lying. (laughs) Um, Trump really has, again, dispensed with this. There's lots of times where. If it's not evident to him, it's certainly evident to everyone else that he's lying. And we saw this, of course, on the first day of his presidency, when, you know, he had Sean Spicer say, biggest inaugural crowd in history, we could see the photographs, which said that is not true. Who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? You know, that kind of thing. And I think, in a way, it was this great metaphor for opening the Trump presidency because, even in the world of politics, where a certain amount of divergence from the, the courtroom truth is expected, the truth as we would say it under oath to a judge, uh, even in politics, he manages to astound and uh, you know break new records with his casual mendacity. Um, and, and so in that sense... Um, He's, he's kind of uh, dispensed with the need for spin. He's kind of made it possible just to say anything and assert it or rounding the corner on the coronavirus. You know, he said that on a day when the United States had 80,000 new infections, which was a record. You know, how those two things can be true, you know, in any person's spin is is beyond me. So I think here again we see Trump not only using tricks and techniques of those who came before, but finding ways to just blow past the guardrails or the you know the 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 levers of, of that are holding him in place and plow right ahead without without concern for whether he'll be held accountable to the truth.
1: Presidents historically have viewed their role as being the leader of the United States, but also the leader of the free world, United States being the most powerful country in the world, the world's leading democracy. Um, Donald Trump very clearly has not wanted that role. He's eschewed it. He's attacked our allies. And I guess the case for that is that he felt that they weren't pulling their weight, that they needed to contribute more to our alliance And I suppose in some ways that's paid off, but it's also had a cost. Do you think that will continue? Yeah, you know, I um, was thinking of writing a piece, you know, 10 good
0: things Donald Trump has done as president. I've only been able to come up with seven, but yeah, we'll we'll see. There's still time. One I think is good is, yes, it, it was good to get other countries of NATO to contribute more. Um, to, you know, NATO and collective security. Um, But it was not a good idea to denigrate the alliance and threaten American participation in the alliance as the way to get there. I mean, maybe Mr. Art of the Deal felt this was the best way to get there. But to me, it seems to go beyond that. It seems that he doesn't fully appreciate the importance or the value of not just NATO, but a whole series of treaties and international organizations that he's pulled out of, WHO, Paris Climate Accords, uh, and so forth. Um, so the question really is, are we look, going to be looking at a period that you might compare to the period after World War I? So in the 1920s, there was sort of a resurgence of nationalism and countries... Sort of pulling back away from international cooperation, and of course, America's failure to join the League of Nations um, was a part of that. In the sense that each of us will manage on our own. So you know, there, there's there's there is a coherent philosophy there uh, that does represent a sharp break from what both parties. Uh, in America have held to since, you know, FDR.
1: The conventional wisdom going back some years now is that presidents have been accumulating more power in Washington, that they've been gaining power while Congress has been losing it, that you saw uh, George W. Bush with his signing statements, you saw President Barack Obama with his executive actions, and, and Trump certainly has pushed that. Even further, he called in a national emergency to, to build his border wall. He, he's, he's been in fights with the courts, in the courts, over his effort to ban uh, Muslims from com- coming to the United States. Do you see that conventional wisdom? Do you buy that? And do you think that trend continues, or might there be a reversion to a norm?
0: I, I think that is, is generally a fair... Uh, statement to make you know after Watergate, there was a reigning in of the presidency by Congress, but it didn 't last very long and I think you could you can point to say the Reagan years as the time when the presidency started to reassert itself, so it was really only a few years um, at the same time, it can be overstated you know Trump has been able to do as much as he 's done because. Congress has enabled him, especially the Senate. Uh, when you look at periods, even recent periods, where we've had completely divided government, um, where Congress, both houses of Congress, were in one party's hands and the president the other, Congress has been um, very aggressive in using its own powers, particularly the powers of investigation, um, to hamstring the president. And this happened too, of course, with impeachment and you know, some, to some degree, some investigation of Trump that has, you know, kind of kept him tied up. But, you know, we saw it obviously with Clinton. Um, You know, there were so many congressional investigations really that were just designed to sort of harass. And in some ways, this is Congress's strongest uh, tool uh, in in the arsenal to sort of fight back against an ascendant presidency. Um, As to whether it will change, you know, I I think if you see not only a Biden presidency, but a Democratic Senate, the experience of Trump will probably uh, encourage Democrats to try to impose some new laws, more explicit laws, presidents presidential candidates must release their tax returns, for example, or or stricter laws against nepotism or self-dealing and emoluments. Um, you know, after Franklin Roosevelt violated this long-standing norm that a president only serves two terms, and he went on to be elected four times, the Republicans were like, we want a constitutional amendment limiting the president to two terms. And you know, even a lot of Democrats were able to understand the wisdom of it. So I think post Trump, there will be a push to establish, to turn some norms into laws, to to set up some stricter enforcement, uh, to try to prevent another Trump. How, how far it will reach, how effective it will be in practice, is very hard to say.
1: Okay, let's look way ahead. You know. Fifty years hundred years from now, is the presidency recognizable, do you think, or is it has it morphed into something completely different than what we have now yeah, you
0: know, I think we've had two or three fundamental periods of change in the presidency um, where it became something different um, f- And, you know, we might talk about the presidencies of Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, but I'm going to say first we look at the progressive era and the presidencies of Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, Um, you know, both of whom have reputationally fallen on hard times a little bit, but both of whom, for all their differences, and of course they ran against each other in 1912, believed in bringing the federal government through the hand of the presidency into the economic life of the nation. Taxation, regulation, uh, seeing the gross economic inequalities that had evolved in the Gilded Age, uh, labor exploitation, inequality, and so on, and saying this has to be addressed at the federal level with the president leading the way. And so after that time, the presidency became a much more important office than it had been for the most part in the 19th century. The second big change, of course, was Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, which brought the presidency even more into our lives. I don't think that the growth of power in recent years is a historical turning point, the way the Progressive Era or the New Deal Era was. So, as I look forward, I, I I don't see necessarily the character of the presidency fundamentally changing. But of course, it could, based on events that I just don't foresee, uh, which is more likely than not. I mean, you know, the main thing that changes uh, our political structures are events. And the first event was the rise of industrial capitalism and corporations that forced the progressives of the early 20th century to think anew about policy, and then the Great Depression. For for all that, you know, and even the pandemic, it's it's not on that scale. At least it it doesn't seem right now like it's on that scale. It's still a big deal. Um, So I don't see the catalyst for transforming the character of the presidency right now. I don't think it's just a function of the individuals. Yes, Wilson and both Roosevelt's were strong characters who worked their will, much the way Trump is in many respects. But you also need the world events to almost call for changes in the office that these uh, ambitious individuals will seek to meet.
1: Professor, we've just gone through this big court fight. There's a new justice, Amy Coney Barrett, on the court. We had an impeachment earlier this year. There's a sense among a lot of Democrats that the Constitution itself is under threat because of the way President Trump has managed the presidency. Do you share their fears? And if so, why or why why not? It's a good question. And I have to say, uh, off the top of my head...
0: I, I can't think of instances where I can say, here, Donald Trump has violated the Constitution. Um, there may be some that just escaped me now, and the sheer chaos of the Trump presidency makes it hard for anyone to recall even some of his most egregious actions. He certainly talked about things. Um, for example, I think... If he were to try to pardon himself, which I wouldn't put past him, um, you know, that would be a constitutionally dubious measure, probably unconstitutional, but one that is not exactly uh, spelled out. Um, He talked about, doesn't appear to be planning to do it anymore, delaying the election, uh, also which would be unconstitutional. Or refusing to leave. (laughs) Right, or refusing to leave, right. So the prospect is there because Trump has never really shown respect for the Constitution. So if we flip the question around a little bit and say, okay, maybe we can't point to outright violations, although maybe some of your listeners can, and they're welcome to email me and say, you forgot about this. But even if we can't point to those explicit violations, we can say he has not modeled or upheld respect for the Constitution. And in its own way, that is quite pernicious because, again, it, it threatens to normalize it. If future presidents follow in his pattern, then, respect, then the Constitution could become sort of like a dead letter. It's it's still there, but if, if we're routinely ignoring it, it means nothing. And, and that is, I think, a real danger, you know, not something that's imminent, but something we have to be mindful of.
1: Professor uh, Ross Dutha, the the conservative columnist in the New York Times the other day, wrote a piece saying, you know, don't worry about um, President Trump trying to stay on if he loses the election. He's basically not competent enough to to manage that sort of constitutional upheaval. Um, But it raises a question, you know, might there be another president in the future who shares his same gifts for um, populism and for riling up a base who's also more competent and more committed to um, pursuing power:
0: Yeah, I mean first, I wouldn't underestimate trump's competence. I mean clearly, on some things like the coronavirus, he has not not shown himself terribly competent, but if you look at rolling back environmental regulations. He's been incredibly accomplished at achieving that goal. So I wouldn't underestimate him on that score. Look, I think a lot of this depends on what happens next. In some ways, I think the Democrats or the country will be very lucky to have someone like Joe Biden come next. And I say that not because I'm such a huge Biden fan, but because he has run the whole time On, you know, a return to normalcy—to use Warren Harding's old phrase—on a return to decency, on a return to uh, order and justice, and that's very good. If, If if the person who followed Trump was a wild man of the left, who was equally scornful, or even almost as scornful, of rules and laws and norms and conventions then I think we could get into a real race to the bottom where both sides and both sides' constituencies would be weaned from a respect for fair play, for norms. Both sides would say, well, we're at political war. Both sides would see it as a kind of Flight 93 election or whatever the term was, where anything goes. And when both sides are playing that game, then yes, then... The next president to come along who's smarter than Trump, more able than Trump, you know, and perhaps even more malign than Trump um, is going to try to achieve even more uh, and be even more uh, heedless of democracy. So I think whether it's Biden or even someone from the Republican side, that John Kasich were to come next, if, if the next president or next two presidents try to steer us back To a familiar, well functioning democracy, whatever flaws and problems we continue to have, uh, that is what will avert this kind of race to the bottom.
1: Professor, thanks so much.
0: Sure, my pleasure.